Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoffer, an aspiring church historian, and this is The Baptist Heritage, a podcast where we explore the origins of the Baptist denomination against a broad ecumenical movement from the 16th century to present day. As we move chronologically from the late 1500s, we'll be highlighting important events and personalities in Baptist history. Episode 4, King James, the Hampton Court Conference, and the Authorized Version of the Bible. Last episode, we discussed Francis Johnson and the ancient church as they migrated to Holland in the 1590s to escape the increasing persecutions of Queen Elizabeth, such as the Conventicle Act of 1593. We briefly examined the differences between the two forms of church government vying for power in the 16th century, Episcopal, or rule by bishops, and Presbyterian, rule by election of elders. And, as we are seeing with the radical separatist leaders like Robert Brown and Henry Barrow and John Greenwood, Congregationalism is emerging with the claim that it is the true form of church government practiced in the New Testament. In spite of all the diversity between the various separatist groups, two things generally hold constant. One, they do not like being identified as Brownists or Anabaptists. And two, they themselves usually split into further factions. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you know that these separatist churches didn't all have happy endings. To lend credit to the Catholic criticism of the Protestant movement, The further fragmentation of Christendom was a necessary consequence of the Reformation. In other words, this age was the infant stage of denominationalism, a time when Reformation principles would result in Calvin's Geneva, John Knox's Presbyterian Scotland, Zwingli's Swiss Reformed Church, and of course, England's Ecclesia Anglicana, or the Church of England. These strains of Protestantism are usually referred to as the magisterial reformers, because, in spite of their casting off of the authority of Rome and the denouncement of the Pope as Antichrist, they still supported the rule of magistrates, or civil authorities, to enforce their true faith. On the surface, it seems a little counterintuitive that the reformers, who had previously witnessed the abuses of an oppressive state-sponsored religion, would in turn commit the same error by relying on magistrates to enforce conformity. But that just illustrates how connected religious and civil affairs were at the time. That union of civil and spiritual had been the norm for over a millennium since the days of Constantine and Theodosius in the 4th century. It wasn't about to end overnight. We will see, good listener, how this age became the breeding ground not only for the Baptist faith, but also for an early articulation of liberty of conscience. Remember that Robert Brown said, quote, God's people is of the willing sort. But I digress. For this episode, I'd like to interrupt the discussion of our four separatist leaders and talk about several monumental events at the beginning of the 17th century. The rise of King James to the English throne, the Hampton Court Conference, and the commission of the King James Bible. A brief overview of these happenings will not only provide context for what is about to come, 
but also bring back some of the characters we've discussed in previous episodes. So here goes. And his excellent book, God's Secretaries, The Making of the King James Bible, Adam Nicholson begins by saying, quote, Few moments in English history have been more hungry for the future, its mercurial possibilities, and its hope of richness than the spring of 1603. At last, the old, hesitant, querulous, and increasingly unapproachable Queen Elizabeth was dying. End quote. In a sense, history was simply repeating itself. The end of one reign, and a long one at that, Elizabeth had reigned for 44 years, was coming to an end, and a new king meant a new world. This was precisely the case when she ascended the throne in 1558 on the heels of the short-lived but very intense reign of her half-sister, Bloody Mary Tudor. Anticipation had been in the air then, as it was now, upon her death. What direction would the church take? Elizabeth's motto had famously been Semper Adem, Latin for always the same. For religious dissenters, it was time to strike while the iron was hot, ensuring that another 40 years of always the same was not to follow. James Stuart had already been King James VI of Scotland for 35 years when he succeeded his cousin Elizabeth to become King James I of England in 1603 and henceforth ruled the two kingdoms united. The various religious factions vying for influence sprang into action, producing petitions and documents, persuading the king to be sympathetic to their calls for further reform. In fact, Francis Johnson and Henry Ainsworth, the separatist leaders from the last episode, were among the many that presented the king with an official document detailing their plight. In 1604, they departed from their exile in Amsterdam to arrive in London with the intent to present King James with a copy of their confession called, quote, an apology or defense of such Christians as are commonly but unjustly called brownists, end quote. In the introduction of their apology, they stated, quote, For as much as many have solicited your majesty with this their cause of religion, it seemed needful unto us also, most gracious sovereign, to publish the cause that we profess and are persuaded to be of the truth of God, end quote. As a side note, I have to mention that the word apology in those days meant defense. The term derives from the Greek word apologia and was originally used in the legal context of a plaintiff responding to another's accusations. Our modern understanding of the word as an expression of regret is not how the word has been historically understood. So if you hear me use the word on this podcast, just know that I probably mean defense, Unless, of course, I'm apologizing for something stupid I said. My apologies for the interruption. Let's turn the focus back to King James. As I mentioned, Francis Johnson and Henry Ainsworth weren't the only ones to present the king with a written request of desired reforms. A petition supposedly signed by 1,000 ministers was also delivered to the king. It was entitled, The Humble Petition of the Ministers of the Church of England desiring reformation of certain ceremonies and abuses of the church. It's a long title. The document came to be known simply as 
the millinery petition, an apropos nickname that reflects the quantity of clergy to whom it is subscribed. The petition was aimed at ridding the Anglican Church of the last vestiges of Roman Catholicism and to bring to conclusion the long, rumbling agony of the English Reformation. Remember that Puritans, though not all alike, preferred Presbyterian government over Episcopalian and objected to things such as Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, ceremonial garments, kneeling during communion, using the sign of the cross, and a variety of other acts they considered anti-Christian. James responded to the millinery petition by calling a conference at Hampton Court in 1604 where both Anglican and Puritan ministers could engage in theological debate. Out of this conference came the commission for a new translation of the Bible. On a cold January morning in 1604, a group of bishops, deans, and Puritans met with King James at Hampton Court, the royal palace outside of London that had been the beloved home of Henry VIII. The Puritans, so acutely concerned with the future of the English church, were largely outnumbered by the self-interested bishops, who had not wanted the conference to ever take place. King James liked to consider himself something of a theologian, and welcomed a meeting in which clashing viewpoints could be brought into practical compromise for the unity of his kingdom. When the bishop suggested that the Church of England had been in a near-perfect state for the past 40 years and it needed no change, James sarcastically retorted that just because a man has been sick for 40 years does not mean that he shouldn't be cured. His shrewd doublespeak drove both groups towards moderation, though he clearly favored the position of the bishops over the Puritans. The latter group consisted of only four delegates— all of whom were considered very moderate Puritans. For example, Lawrence Chatterton, master of Emmanuel College at Cambridge, was an avowed Presbyterian. He had censored the young Cambridge student Francis Johnson, again the subject of the last podcast, though the two held very similar nonconformist ideals, and in fact Chatterton had probably encouraged his separatist views. When Johnson was imprisoned and ejected from the university after his infamous sermon on Presbyterian government, Chatterton endorsed his expulsion by rejecting an appeal of the decision. One historian has noted that, quote, his moderate Puritan stance led him to teach Reformed and Presbyterian doctrine, though not to openly resist the powers that be, but instead, as he wrote, to pray for the change, end quote. Such was the moderation of Lawrence Chatterton and the three Puritan representatives with him at Hampton Court. The king had made it clear that no radical separatists, or as he called them, quote, the brain-sick and heady preachers, end quote, would be entertained at his conference. A similar antidote of every individual present at Hampton Court cannot be given, But perhaps one more will suffice to generalize the attitude of the opposing party, the bishops. Lancelot Andrews was a man of many titles, among some of which were Master of Pembroke College, Cambridge, Dean of Westminster, and Bishop of three dioceses, including Chichester, Ely, and Winchester. He was easily considered one of the most educated men in England, 
able to speak 15 languages, including the ancient languages of the Christian tradition, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, and Arabic. He was loyal to the establishment of Elizabeth, and now at Hampton Court, he was loyal to King James and his Episcopalian preferment. But his loyalty also had an undignified side. During the separatist persecutions of Elizabeth, Andrews had been sent to interrogate Henry Barrow, who we briefly discussed in the last episode. He was the incarcerated pastor of the London congregation that Francis Johnson eventually took over. If you recall in the last episode, Francis Johnson had set out to burn Henry Barrow's book, but was instead so moved by it that he traveled to London to confer with Barrow in prison. Andrews had been sent to Fleet Prison to acquire a confession of some kind from Barrow, whose congregational style and nonconformity to the Church of England had resulted in his three-year imprisonment and eventual execution. During the scene of the interrogation in the Fleet Prison, a dejected Henry Barrow expressed his cruel treatment at the hands of the bishops and his desire to have a fair trial in which the Word of God could decide the outcome. However, Lancelot Andrews ridiculed him by saying that, quote, The book of God cannot speak. Which way should that decide our controversies? Barrow, then pitifully, yet never undignified, complains of solitude and longing for Christian fellowship, the pleas of a destitute man. Again, Andrews, in one of his most despicable moments, snaps, quote, For close imprisonment, you should be most happy. The solitary and contemplative life I hold to be the most blessed life. It is the life I would choose. End quote. What else could Barrow remark except for, quote, You speak philosophically, but not Christianly. End quote. Three years later, Henry Barrow was executed, with Lancelot Andrews standing by. In his book, God's Secretaries, Adam Nicholson recounts the chilling scene saying, quote, Could you ask for a more chilling indictment of established religion than that? End quote. It had been over a decade since that unfortunate episode had taken place between the bishop and the separatist leader in Fleet Prison. And now, in 1604, Lancelot Andrews and other bishops met for three days at Hampton Court, bending the ear of the king for the cause of Anglican conservatism against the radical Puritans. And, more or less, the bishop's calls won out, with one major exception, a new translation of the Bible. The Puritan leader, John Reynolds, had put forth a request for, quote, one only translation of ye Bible to be authentical and read in ye church, end quote. Of course, his request was largely directed at the bishop's Bible, a translation that Elizabeth had commissioned to be used exclusively in her religious establishment. No doubt Reynolds had something else in mind, something akin to the Geneva Bible, a popular translation among nonconformists that had been completed abroad in Geneva and had margin notes that gave a more reformed and less Anglican interpretation of the scriptures. Much to the displeasure of the bishops, King James' interest had been piqued. He had no desire for a Geneva study Bible, 
which, by the way, translated every instance of the word king with tyrant. But he did see two advantages. One, appeasing the Puritans, and two, creating a translation that would unify Jacobean England. After all, the finest minds of Cambridge, Oxford, and Westminster were available, and many of those in attendance would serve the interest by acting as translators, Puritan and Anglican alike, including the multilinguistic Lancelot Andrews and the more moderate Lawrence Chatterton. The project would represent James' desire for wholeness and consensus, for inclusion and breadth, and after all, it would bear his name. The authorized version, or the King James Bible as it has become known, took seven years to complete. The translation process was arranged into six groups of eight men each, with two groups at Cambridge, two at Oxford, and two at Westminster. These groups, called companies, were each presided over by a director and given a range of biblical books to complete. The scope of the process was massive. Previous translations had been completed by one or more men, and often in duress as they were hunted by the Catholic Church. This committee of 50 or so translators was four times larger than any previous undertaking and consisted of the most learned men in England, such as the aforementioned Lancelot Andrews, who served as the director of the First Westminster Company. Richard Bancroft, the Archbishop of Canterbury, drafted 15 rules that served to guide the companies in their translation process. A brief explanation of a few of these rules will be helpful. For example, rule number three states that, quote, the old ecclesiastical words are to be kept, the word church not to be translated congregation, end quote. This rule assured that the new translation did not favor Puritan ideology. Recall that the Puritans, also called Presbyterians at the time, favored a church government in which a congregation elected an elder to preside over them. Therefore, Bancroft and his ilk wanted to steer away from anything that sounded congregational, lest it give Puritans and Separatists a stronger interpretive apologetic. This rule also gave preference to the word bishop over elder and priest over minister for the same reasons. Another rule indicated that, quote, no marginal notes at all to be affixed, but only for the explanation of Hebrew or Greek words which cannot, without some circumlocution, so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. End quote. Again, this rule was likely directed against the Geneva Bible, a translation by English reformers that gave a strong Puritan interpretation alongside the text, much like a study guide. Generally, this rule reflected unease about the prospect that marginal notes might reflect a particular theological perspective. It must be noted, however, that the following rule did allow for the translators to set down in the margin cross-references of one scripture to another. Lastly, the individuals were to submit their work to their immediate company for review, and then each company would send their agreed-upon revision to the rest of the companies for further review. This ensured the preservation of the text by a series of checks and balances, a full examination of all 15 rules cannot be offered here, 
but thankfully, written accounts of Bancroft's guidelines have been preserved for us today. Similarly, a good deal is known about many of the men involved in the translation process. William Barlow, an attendee at Hampton Court, was commissioned to publish a record of the discussions that took place there. This account is entitled The Sum and Substance of the Conference at Hampton Court and remains today as an important primary account and helps to shed some light on the creation of the King James Bible. In 1611, the translation was finally published and appointed to be read in churches. In its time, it did not receive the reception the king had intended. This is probably due to three reasons. One, the printer for the king made a number of printing errors throughout a variety of editions so that inconsistencies were frequent. To make matters worse, his ineptitude cost him his business and landed him in a debtor's prison. Two, many preachers, even those anti-Puritans such as Lancelot Andrews, ironically continued to use the Geneva Bible. And three, other translations continued to fly off the printing press, namely the Geneva Bible, which the king ordered to be stopped in 1616, though it continued illegally until 1644. It wasn't until late in the 17th century, after the English Civil War, that the King James Version was recognized for the marvelous work that it truly was. Simply in literary terms, it was renowned for its poetic cadence and vivid imagery. Its contribution to the English language was unparalleled, and it coincided with a surge in literacy levels in England and later in America. You would be right to ask yourself, how did the Bible of the monarchy, with anti-Puritan undertones, become and remain such a staple of early and even modern America, which is essentially an experiment in religious freedom? After all, even the separatists, whose story we are largely following in this podcast, took with them the Geneva Bible when they traversed the Atlantic Ocean on the Mayflower in 1620. Adam Nicholson perhaps says it best, quote, It is one of the strangest of historical paradoxes that the King James Bible, whose whole purpose had been nation-building in the service of a ceremonial and Episcopal church, should become the guiding text of Puritan America. End quote. Of course, one component in unlocking that paradox is its divine sanction, its status as the inspired Word of God. Its contributors may have been unrefined, and its commission may have had a political motive, but it was still the Word of God. In the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 24 and 25, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. As we follow the story of the pilgrims, and then the migration of more and more Puritans to the New World later in the 17th century, we will undoubtedly talk about the King James Version that became the dominant Bible for Americans. This will become even clearer when we get to some major cultural influences in the 18th century, such as the shift to conversionist preaching by George Whitfield and Handel's Messiah, which used the King James Version, and occurred at the same time. But I don't want to get too ahead of myself, so this is probably a good place to end. On the next episode... 
we will look at the years during which the translation took place. The king and his watchdog, Richard Bancroft, were accelerating the persecutions of nonconformists, such as John Robinson, the pastor of the Pilgrims. We will see this group leave England and travel to Holland. Additionally, we will take a look at John Smith, a student of Francis Johnson's, who baptized himself and directly affected the rather curious development of what became known as General Baptists. I hope you are enjoying the narrative of the Separatists. I know it can be a lot of information to digest, so please remember that in the show notes there is a link to a full transcript complete with footnotes and citations. It may be helpful to print it and reference it periodically. Thanks again to everyone who has supported the podcast so far. If you feel so inclined, please leave a review, as it will help others find the show. And as always, thank you for listening, and peace be with you.